once again, I suggest that we have the opportunity to practice the Buddha way, the Bodhisattva way. We have the opportunity to observe all living beings with eyes of compassion. I have also suggested to you that the Buddhas practice this way of observing all living beings with eyes of compassion, sitting in the middle of all beings. Buddhas are sitting in the middle of all sentient beings, which includes all the bodhisattvas, and it includes all the people who don't think they're bodhisattvas. But it also, the Buddha sits in the middle of all Buddhas who are sitting in the middle of all sentient beings. So we're sitting in the middle of beings, of Buddhas and bodhisattvas, who are sitting in the middle of all beings, and each of us is also sitting in the middle of all beings. Each of us is sitting in the middle of a grand central station, surrounded by uncountable beings, uncountable trucks and trains and planes swirling around the central station. I have never had the good fortune of actually being in New York's grand central station. Whenever I come to New York, I'm always in Grand Central Station, but I've never been to the building. (laughs) But I did read an article about the building in the New Yorker. So now I imagine this station, I imagine that Grand Central Station doesn't move. Our Grand Central Station doesn't move. And I think the one in Manhattan doesn't either. Also, one of the amazing things that this article told me about was that in the middle of Manhattan, like during rush hour, when you actually go into the central area of Grand Central Station, it's quiet. I, I don't know, maybe they said in rush hour, when you're actually in the middle there with people walking by all around you, talking, and you can hear a quarter drop. Maybe not a penny, but you can hear a quarter drop on the floor. And I thought, that's very much like our Grand Central Station. Our Grand Central Station is quiet. There's sound all around it, but at the center, it's quiet, and it's still. And that's where we sit to listen. Also, in the image of the Buddha sitting in the midst of the fierce flames of all beings, and that, that, uh, that's, that circle of flames is sometimes called komyo. 
if you look at statues of Buddhas, some of the statues have these flames all around them. And that, that, uh, that flame aura that they're sitting in the middle of is called komyo, which means, uh, well, basically, it, it means brilliant light, but also sometimes called spiritual light. And it's about this place where Buddhas sit. And so one Zen teacher said, they sit in the middle of the flames, they sit upright and still in the middle of the flames. And a cool breeze rises on their eyebrows. So they're in the middle of all this life energy, and they're quiet and still and cool and relaxed and open to all this suffering. So this is a picture of what might be called the Buddha ancestors' zazen. They sit in central station, upright, open, and listening and observing all sentient beings. Uh, some, someone said to me, well, you, you've been talking about compassion this year, this visit, and you talked about compassion in past visits. What about, com what about wisdom? And I thought, oh, well, I, I have said, and I'll say again, that when we observe sentient beings with eyes of compassion, and that observation becomes wholehearted, each sentient being becomes a door to the Dharma. And when that door opens, and we rec when we realize what we're being shown, that is wisdom. And I have heard around the world that a number of people who speak English are meditating on the question, who is listening? I've heard that. Uh, Buddhist teachers and students are meditating on who is listening. And I, I think that's a wisdom question. But, but I think there's a problem in the Buddhist community that people are being offered that question before they're listening. And so the question doesn't work quite as well if you start practicing it before you're really listening. Like, so somebody says, who's listening? And then you start listening. OK, OK. <laughs> I'm looking. Rather than you're like totally into it, and then somebody says, who's listening? Who is like really observing all sentient beings? Who is that? What is that? So that's why I'm emphasizing, ground yourself before you start looking at what, looking for what you are. Ground yourself in listening to all beings, which turns out to be who you are. And then, what is that? What is that thing that's all beings that are being listened to? So again, 
in some sense, the conclusion of the project is perfect wisdom, but that grows up out of great compassion. It's not perfect wisdom unless it's like living in the context of great compassion, which you seem to be happy to practice. And also, I mentioned to the person who asked that question, the Heart Sutra is a sutra about perfect wisdom, and the person who's teaching is the bodhisattva of great compassion. And in the Prajnaparamita literature, which is a lot of sutras in this literature, some really huge ones, and the Heart Sutra is one of the shorter ones, or maybe almost not the shortest, but one of the shortest, I think the only Prajnaparamita sutra where Avalokiteshvara is teaching perfect wisdom is the Heart Sutra. Let me know if you find any others where the main teacher, so Avalokiteshvara is the Buddha's spokesperson. In the, there's a larger version of it where they tell you in the tableau that Buddha and Avalokiteshvara are sitting in silence and stillness. And then Avalokiteshvara uh, sees all five skandhas are empty in their own being, and this, and this relieves all suffering and distress. And then from this situation of realizing perfect wisdom and relieving all suffering in that vision, starts talking to Shariputra. And the Zen school, not just the Zen school, many schools of Mahayana Buddhism, that's their like main, most frequently recited perfect wisdom scripture, is the one that has perfect, great compassion teaching perfect wisdom. Great compassion teaches perfect wisdom. Perfect wisdom understands what compassion is, but it's the understanding of compassion is based on compassion. You have to have compassion to understand what compassion is. There's a smile which is in my face, and it could get bigger. But anyway, it's, <laughs> it's because I'm thinking of a chapter in the Lotus Sutra called, called Never Disparaging Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva Never Disparaging. And I thought of that because I was going to say to you, you will realize perfect wisdom. So he went around telling everybody, I won't disparage you. You will. You are going to become Buddhas. And people got irritated with him. <laughs> so I'm a little afraid to tell you, you will realize perfect wisdom. And you will practice great compassion. And in that great compassion, the doors of liberation will open. You will meet the true dharma, and you'll take care of it. And then you, together with all beings, will realize Buddha's way. You will practice what's necessary. And I've also heard quite a few people say, it's so hard. You will practice in the face of what is so hard. You will practice compassion in the face 
of great pain and difficulty. You will. You already are. You already are. You wouldn't be in this room. You wouldn't be able to stand to listen to me <laughs> if you weren't practicing some compassion. So you're already doing it, but you will do it thoroughly to the fullness of it. You will do it. And then wisdom will bloom in that compassion. Just like, again, the image of the lotus flower. The lotus flower is the image of Buddha's wisdom. The roots of the lotus plant in the mud is the great compassion. Our, our nature, our true nature, is in the mud. Our true nature is purity, is originally pure, and that originally pure nature is in the mud. And in the mud, our nature sprouts roots which embrace the mud. And out of that embrace of the mud comes this shoot, which comes up out of the water and blooms into wisdom. And you will put in roots down. And you, you will, your, your practice will put roots down. Your, your original nature will put roots down and will sprout and will give rise to this beautiful lotus dharma flower. This is your DNA. And this flower, the petals of this flower will drop away, and then there'll be this fruit. And the fruit has seeds. And the fruit will fall back into the water. And the seeds will burst out of the fruit and go all over the pond, and they'll go into the next generation of wisdom. Uh, one more thing I would like to say to you is that I've been listening to the recitation, and I've been reciting, and I've been reading this Ehe Koso Hotsugamon, the verses for arousing the vow written by the Zen teacher Dogen. I've been listening to it, and there's one. There's various parts in there that I, you know, am working on. And one of them I'd like to share with you, where it says, "By revealing and disclosing our lack of." And then it says, in the original, I'm not sure what it says, but maybe it says faith, the character for faith, and then the character for practice. So that could be translated as. By revealing and disclosing our, our lack of faith and practice, or it could be by revealing and disclosing our lack of faith practice, or it could be by revealing uh, and disclosing our lack of faith in practice. All those are possible. Faith and practice, faith in practice, faith practice. To, for some of us, I think for me, one of my faith practices is to observe sentient beings with eyes of compassion. I, do, I believe that that might be a good thing for me to do. And then when I actually give myself, or at least loan myself to that practice, I've never regretted it. And so then my faith that that would be good 
gets a little bit more vigorous. And then that supports it to happen again. And then I don't regret it again. And then it gets stronger and stronger. It's a faith practice. I heard about it. I thought, OK, well, if Avalokiteshvara does it, maybe I'll try it. Just, and for me, faith is like a bet. I'm going to bet on that. I'm going to give my life to it. OK? That's my bet. For you know, a while, maybe the rest of my life. And sometimes I might notice a lack of faith in practice. I might forget to observe somebody with eyes of compassion. And then I notice, oh, kind of a, that wasn't, I wasn't really, uh, yeah, I missed the chance. I wasn't, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I wasn't really observing with eyes of compassion. And I confess it, and I'm sorry. And by, re by doing that, by revealing your lack of practicing what you believe in, before the Buddhas, who happen to be right here, that revelation and expression of regret or sorrow about missing your vocation, your job, your hobby, <laughs> my wife said to me early on in the journey together, she said, you're so lucky. Your vocation, your profession, and your hobby are all the same thing. It's true. It's so, I'm so fortunate. I don't have to go away from my vocation to practice my hobby. My hobby is observing all sentient beings <laughs> with eyes of compassion. There's another word for hobby, right? Avocation. Vocation and avocation. So it says, when we reveal our lack of devotion to our faith, practice, before the Buddhas, we melt away the root of transgressions by the power of the confession and repentance. Uh, we don't melt away the root of the transgression. The confession and repentance before the Buddhas, in the presence of the Buddhas, that melts away the root of transgression. Or another way to say it is, that melts away the root of worldly activities. But I don't think it melts away the roots of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I don't think it melts away all defilement, all suffering. It melts away the roots of transgressing from the, from the practice. So we're not going to ever, we're never going to get away. My understanding is we're not going to get away from the mud. And in the muds, Everything that's difficult and painful is in the mud. We're not going to like uh, put down roots, give rise to the flower, and then melt away the mud. <laughs> what we're going to melt away is the transgressing from the practice with the mud. 
so we can get better and better at or more and more wholehearted about observing all beings by doing it and also by confessing when we missed a chance. So the transgression is not the mud, it's the turning away from the mud or it's holding onto the mud too tightly. It's like, <laughs> it's a transgression would be if all the roots came together and just focused on one little spot of mud. That would be a kind of transgression from embracing the whole, all the mud. So it's okay if you're a brain surgeon or a psychotherapist. You can specialize if you want to. <laughs> or a cook, or a mother or a father. You can like focus on your kids, but you're not just focusing on your kids. You're focusing on your kids for all kids. And when other kids cry, and you hear them, you listen to them, even though they don't really want you to give them too much attention because you're not their parent. But you're, you hear them calling, and maybe, even though they don't want you, maybe you're all that's available. <laughs> As I often mention, when I first started picking up my leader, you know who my leader is, right? Do you know who my leader is? Yeah, my granddaughter is my leader. So when I first started picking up my leader, leader is, a, is what we call strong little girls. We don't call them bossy anymore. But, you know, anyway, she's my leader. I don't call you bossy either. You're my leader. Anyway, I, I went to pick up my leader at daycare. She's about two, I don't know, something like that. And she sees me and she says, I don't want granddaddy. <laughs> I want mommy. And I listened to that and accepted her instructions. Anyway, she, she didn't get her mommy, she got me. And so the, all the people at the daycare helped her get into the stroller and we got outside and I'm She's in the stroller, and I'm pushing the stroller, and she says, oh, look over there. And, you know, she accepted that I was her, I was her servant. So we can specialize, but not like, you know, un, unwilling to accept new assignments. And she does that with me, too. She would like to specialize in her mom, but She's accepting that sometimes her mom isn't around, so she has to take care of me and give me instructions. So again, by, by practicing our practice, that melts away the roots of transgressions. But in addition to that practice, we have the practice of acknowledging and not forgetting that we sometimes forget and being compassionate to our forgetfulness and, and maybe we feel somewhat sorry that we forgot. But this sorrow is not a sorrow which makes us give up. It's a sorrow which makes us more enthusiastic about doing what we forgot to do. So for you and for me, I mentioned that uh, thing about melting away the roots of transgressions. So the Buddhas like are, have finally, they're not transgressing anymore. 
they're always practicing, and they're practicing with omnipresent suffering. The Buddhists have not got rid of suffering. They've gotten rid of distractions from practice with the suffering. It says something like, delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. And another translate, that character delusions, it's a character which means also affliction, which, of course, delusion can be an affliction. But it also means greed and hate. Afflictions are inexhaustible. And it says, I vow to end them. But the character actually more basically means to cut. I vow to cut the afflictions, or cut through. Cut through them with the practice. Not get rid of them. Cut through them. Cut through the mud joyfully. Because there's mud is omnipresent. Enlightenment ex- accepts that. But there can be omnipresent practice, enlightenment, with the omnipresent suffering. And once again, I want to say a little bit more about this thing about compassion, even when there's happiness. Uh, The Buddha taught, which I think some of you heard about, I think five mindfulnesses. And probably there's probably lots of five mindfulnesses. But one of the five mindfulnesses is mindful, which also means remember that happiness is at risk or subject to being lost. What would you say? Impermanence. Uh, Health is subject to loss or impermanence. Youth is subject to loss. Happiness is not a bad thing. Health isn't bad. Life isn't bad. Youth isn't bad. But, the Buddha says, if you don't remember that these things are impermanence, you can become intoxicated with them. Not by them exactly, but with them. When you see youth and you, fr- and you don't remember that it's impermanent, you can get intoxicated. When you see happiness and you don't remember it's impermanent, you can become intoxicated. And when you become intoxicated, you're, again, at more risk of being unskillful, uncareful, unkind, untender, unobserving, because you're so happy with a permanent happiness. So the little kid who is riding with no hands is very happy. But if they don't remember that this happiness and this also this being able to stay on the bicycle is impermanent, then they get intoxicated by this success. And then they become inattentive 
to their job. And I just was thinking recently about the, the Rajneeshi movement. These people get really happy, and, but I don't see much instruction from the teaching that this happiness is impermanent. So they got intoxicated with their happiness, and then unskillful things arose with the intoxication about their happiness. So when I, yeah, I, I'm okay with their happiness, but I think I'm sorry they didn't get the teaching that this happiness is impermanent, because then they, they, they seem to have got intoxicated by it. So you have to watch out. So even in a Zen place, you can be happy and get intoxicated by it. Maybe not quite as likely as some other places. <laughs> but it can even happen in a Zen center that you can get intoxicated by the happiness that arises in the practice place. If you don't remember, this, this is great, this joy, but, you know, be careful. This is impermanent. Then you can just in soberly enjoy the joy. <laughs> and then you can be skillful with the joy, which is another of the virtues of the Odioki practice. So when you're doing the, this formal practice, some people get really joyful about it. And if they don't remember it's impermanent, this joy with this practice, uh, well, the practice then promotes dropping things on the floor and spilling things. And if it, it's, hard, it's not impossible, but it's hard to do this, this form, especially once you learn it. Before you learn it, it's hard to do it. But once you learn it, it's, it's hard to continue it if you get too excited. And, you, and yeah. So the, it's a setup to keep you careful with the enjoyment of doing the practice, if you ever do enjoy it. <laughs> I, I met this young woman who's a, really enthusiastic about Zazen, a lovely person, and she, and she said, in, you know, in front of the song, she said, I hate Odioki. Wow, amazing. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I guess if you were hating something and you forgot that it was impermanent, you might even get intoxicated by hate, I suppose. But certainly, lovely things like young people or, or being a young person and being with young people when you're young, if you forget that it's impermanent, you can get really intoxicated. Like, and actually, what I was talking about before, there is a place for intoxication, and the main place for intoxication is with little babies. <laughs> the mother and the baby can get intoxicated. It's OK. But the baby also has to learn when to stop. So uh, during certain phases of our life, intoxication is appropriate. Getting really super excited 
is necessary. So intoxication is not all bad. It's just another thing to be careful of, along with everything else. And I, I really shouldn't have said anything this morning, um, but you asked me to, so I did. <laughs> or I asked me to, so I did. What I said was not something that I did by myself. I was, re I, I was requested to say these things, and I'm being requested to say these things. Not specifically these words, but I'm being requested to give gifts. So I'm giving these. And now I'd like to continue to, and also I'm requesting you. I requested you to tell me what you want. And you're telling me. You've told me. You've given me all kinds of signals of how to proceed. You're smiling. You're nodding. And that you, you, that's, you're telling me what to do. I'm not saying I do it, but I'm responding. Like if you tell me to be nice, I might be kind instead. So you're, you're making requests of me, and then I'm responding to your requests, and then you're telling me, no, that's not what I meant, and, I, and then I respond to that. So, or that, that, that was right on, no, that's enough, and so on. So that's what's, that's the, that's our original nature, is that we don't do anything alone, and nobody else does either. Nobody does our life for us. We do everything together. And that's where the Bodhisattva precepts are, at Grand Central Station, where everybody's coming to make us what we are, and from, wh from where we make the whole universe. And from this nature, the Buddhas arise, and they teach us about this nature. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.